In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I revisit our 2019 goals. We pontificate on why remote companies might grow slower than co-located ones. And we answer a couple listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 441. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So we're this week, sir. Well, I know that we're only a couple of weeks out from uh, MicroConf in Vegas, but we are just in the process of selling MicroConf Europe tickets. So that will be in the 20th to 22nd of October, and it will be in Dubrovnik, Croatia again. So looking forward to that. It'd be awesome to be back to the same location and one that has a fantastic view of the ocean. Yep. I loved that hotel last year. And so I'm very much looking forward to that. October 22nd, 23rd, 24th. Is that right? I believe so, yes. I'd have to look at the calendar. Yeah, that's, sure that's, that's hard. <laughs> yeah, go to Eventbrite. And yeah, no, they'll be, they'll be on sale soon. So that's good. And I got to start looking for, uh, for speakers for that here soon. So one thing I wanted to throw out that I've been thinking about, there's this book called Mindset, and I believe it's by Carol Dweck. Is that right? I, I, I wish there was some device that I could type a, a name of a book into and figure out you know, who wrote it. But anyways, uh, it's about having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And it's about kind of expanding your thinking and being able and not being caught up in the same beliefs you've had your whole life, as well as just believing that you can get better and that, that you can change and, and do more. And I, I love this book when I read it, and we're trying to instill growth mindsets into our children, right? So they don't go through life thinking, well, this is what I have. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like this the whole time, and I can't learn new things. And whatever I believe, you know, when I was 10 or whatever was instilled in me can't, can't change. And I really think that this runs through, I mean, there's a parallel here with, I see successful founders, like the successful founders I know have growth mindsets. They're always trying to learn. They're always trying to get better. And they're always questioning their beliefs. Now, there are certain moral beliefs, you know, implicit that you probably never should. I mean, there are certain beliefs that that you shouldn't. But then there are these other ones of like, I remember talking about split testing in 2008 and people were telling me, oh, that's what, you know, that's tricking people, right? You're tricking people. That's what internet marketers do. And we don't do that in startups. We're starting to talk about email marketing in 2009, 2010. It's like, well, you're a spammer. Talking about SEO to market a business. It's like, well, yeah, that's just gaming Google. You should just write great content and and you'll rank and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like those are, are fixed mindset things of like, well, th- this is bad. And what I believe is going to hold true forever. But the folks who are able to to kind of embrace those new things, in my experience are the ones, you know, if you're able to do it quickly and you're able to implement these things and take advantage of them, I think these are the the founders that I see succeeding. So the reason I bring this up is there's just, there's a constant ongoing flux, right, of, of new ideas coming in and trends that come in and out of the whole startup scene. I mean, part of my, you know, my talk at MicroConf was about trends that I had observed over the past 14 years of being involved in the scene. One of which, of course, is the the changing nature of funding. You know that that being bootstrapped and and venture funded used to be this binary thing, and then self funding is introduced, where it's like I have two hundred grand in the bank. It's a little different than being bootstrapped. And then there's taking a hundred grand from friends and family. You don't have an institutional investor. Is that how different is that? 
And then there's obviously there's tiny seed and there's indie.vc and there's other players. And technically, yes, you took a dollar. So you have now taken funding, but it's not the same as the VC funding of 10, 15, 20 years ago and doesn't come with the same negative things. And so some thoughts I've been doing and going back to really going back to first principles of like, well, what is bootstrapping about, right? Isn't bootstrapping the reason that I bootstrapped and I would assume for most of us, it's like, we want the freedom to run our own company and we want to have purpose working on something interesting. And we want to have like, healthy relationships with our families, not get divorced, not never be around our kids. And so if we can do that, whether we take a little bit of money, don't take any money, which is totally a viable thing, you know, or take a lot of money or whatever. Like I, I guess I, I've always had those three goals, that freedom, purpose, and relationship. And I think that, that funding has traditionally been at odds with those 10, 15 years ago, it would have been, but like in my head, you know, I think there are more shades of gray than perhaps has been the case in the past. Part of the things that you just talked about are like the changing definitions or understanding of specific pieces. Like, for example, bootstrapping. What does bootstrapping mean? And I think that that question has come up a lot more recently because of things like Tiny Steed and NDVC. Like, what does it mean to be a bootstrapper? And if you have a very specific or fixed view of that in your head, then it's going to impact how you view taking money for your company or somebody else taking money for their company. And I, I don't think that a lot of those definitions are necessarily static because like bootstrapping itself is relatively new. I mean, it's it's really only become a household word in our circles in like the last 10 or 15 years. And our, our circles didn't even really exist 10 or 15 years ago. So it's just the the landscape itself is changing and those definitions are changing at the same time. And it's just, it makes it difficult to not adjust with it. Like you're, you're going to be left behind if you can't adjust your definitions or mindset along the way. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think this is something that I've struggled with. Like I grew up, I'm an engineer. Like I wrote code for decades. And so I do think in very binary and I used to think in very black and white terms, I would almost say I used to be more opinionated, more fixed in my thoughts. And the older I get and the more experienced I get, the more I realize that that has been a detriment to me in my career. And the, the things that held me back early on were holding on to these ideals that I truly believe that I later found out were not as black and white or not as, as true, quote unquote, true as I thought they were. And so anyways, that's it. I just, I've been thinking a lot about that and how to, how to continue. I mean, it's also something for me to continue to grow in, right? It's like what I ask myself the question, like what things do I believe today that I will look back on in five years and think, yeah, that was, that wasn't correct or, or that was holding you back then. On a lighter note, did you know you can get a refund for audible books that you don't like? I did not know that. I did not know that. This is crazy. So I have as background, the only thing, remember how I talked about how I've backed 185 Kickstarters? The only thing worse than Kickstarter for me is Audible. I believe, I would have to look in the library. I th we have close to 500 audiobooks. Wow. Uh, well, I've been a member for nine years. Yeah, it's nuts. I mean, granted, my kids listen to audiobooks. Sherry listens to them. We all share the same account. Hundreds and hundreds. But I, that's how I read. I don't buy physical books. I really don't buy books on Kindle. So I have a lot of them, but I also will go and just try a book. And if I don't like it, I mean, I get two, three, four chapters in, if it's not doing for me what I thought it was doing, it was, or if it's way too academic or way, just a crappy book, I bail on it. I've always, at least, you know, for the past, let's say 10 years, valued my time more than the cost of an audiobook, which runs around, let's say 10 bucks with a membership. So I have a bunch of audiobooks that I haven't listened to. And if they're good, I listened all the way through and I take notes and I, I do all that stuff. But if they're not, I bail on them. 
And I've always just kind of ate that cost. And I realized the other day, you can go back and just say, hey, I didn't like the book. And I'm sure if you abuse this, then they they have some repercussion or something if you did it to, if you listen to every book and then return it or whatever. But it's kind of interesting. So it's a, it's a kind of buried, you know, to find it. But I definitely went back. I let's go back a year and I went back and refunded like maybe seven or eight books that, you know, I'd only gotten a little bit into. And I remember specifically why they were crappy. And I, so I got some extra credits and you know what I did with those credits? You bought more books. <laughs> I instantly bought more books. Of course I did, Mike. So it's uh, it's good. I've always loved information and, and, and learning new things. So I'm listening to books everywhere, you know, on topics everywhere from growing your business to negotiation. I have a book on Leonardo da Vinci, one on uh, World War II, one about Dungeons and Dragons, two about Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> three about Dungeons. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, listening to Profit First based on a recommendation from Patrick Foley. And then I have, you know, something about like kind of dealing with challenges mentally and blah, blah, blah. So none of, you know, all of those won't stand up to the scrutiny, but uh, I do like having a, a very plethora of books to be able to listen to based on kind of the mood and the, the goals that I have at that time. The only thing that shocks me about any of that is that you waited until you got the credit before going and buying more books. No, it's it's true. I didn't actually so spend all So you lied. You yeah. lied. Thousands <laughs> of people. <laughs> I did spend I did spend several of the credits, but yeah, I'm kind of backed up. I don't tend to I tend to have a big wish list, but I don't tend to buy a lot of books until I'm ready, right? Right when I'm ready to listen to it, then I'll buy one or two more and then go into it. Right now I I'm a little overbought because of this credit glut that I experienced after the refund. So all that said, man, let's talk about some 2019 goals. You know, you and I make goals each year. I know there is uh, there are varied opinions on goals. I've always been a goal-driven person. I find that goals help me focus for the year, not get shiny object syndrome, not wander off and do other crap because there are always more opportunities that are super interesting than I can ever do. And so the goals help keep me focused. I sometimes do reevaluate goals and say, you know what? I screwed up when I made that goal in the last year and I shouldn't do that this year. I should pivot the goal or whatever, but these are things that I spend a lot of time thinking about and I'll try to do it on a retreat to make sure that I've spent a day or two thinking about it and really want to accomplish that in the next year. And then that's a high level thing that I then try to focus on for the next 12 months. With that said, we set some goals back in December. It is now second week of April. So we're kind of like just past the first quarter of our goals. And you had two goals with a bunch of sub points under that. So it might actually be like five or six. And I had four goals. So why don't you talk through your first one and uh, let us know how you're doing. This is either going to be the the walk of shame (laughs) or a celebratory episode where we can high five each other. Well, I think it's going to be a a walk between them because I didn't exactly have a lot of heads up on this particular piece of this, this podcast episode. So I did not go back and take a look to see exactly what all these numbers look like. So I can give you ballpark ideas, but probably not exact. In terms of exercise, I know that at least halfway through the first quarter, I was ahead and then it really dropped off the end of the quarter as microconf got closer. So I think that I'm close to what it should have been, but I'm not absolutely sure. So you're saying that that you're not sure if you're on track for two times a week? I, I think that it's close. I'm either still a little ahead or a little behind, but I'm not f- too far off. So like tw- twice a week would have been, you know, 25 times by the end of the quarter. I know that I was at least... 15 or 20 at one point, like the very first, what was it? There was one point where I was, 
I don't know, like six or eight weeks ahead or something like that. So, you know, I was doing very well, but then as microconf got closer, I got busy and I stopped going to the gym. So now that microconf is over, I can start going back. But until then, like I haven't gone back and actually looked at the numbers. I think I'm on track, but I could be a little ahead or a little behind and I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, give or take, you're on track, it sounds like. I am way behind. The winter decimated me. I've talked about this in the past. And then it started getting warm here a couple of weeks ago. I actually started exercising. My first goal is three days of exercise a week. And then we have this, we got six or seven inches of snow yesterday. It's like halfway through April. So it's a train wreck for me so far. And this is a good reminder. If I didn't have this goal, I just would kind of not care. I care because I have this goal. Like it is something that I need to change. And it's something that I want to be doing and I don't enjoy exercise. It's not something I've ever really wanted to do on purpose, but it, it is something that that I that I need to get motivated for. So this is a friendly reminder that I am walk of shaming with the exercise one and I need to figure out a way to do better with this. So the second one for my getting health back on track was having a normal sleep schedule. And part of that involved using my CPAP machine at least five times a week and average usage of at least six and a half hours a night. I can say with absolute certainty that I am actually meeting that, if not exceeding it in a number of different ways. So there's been the app that I use for this only goes back, I think, about 30 days or so. Like I, I can get more data than that if I needed to. But even over the last 30 days, like the lowest I have on here, I think is like five and a half hours. And that's actually kind of a, a lower one. Most of the rest of them are six plus. Some of them are as high as, I think one of them's on here, like nine and a half. Oh, I mean, we got 10 hours and 40 minutes on here for one of them. So yeah, I'm doing well on that one. Very nice. My second one is about tiny seed. It's to build it into the de facto brand when bootstrappers look for early stage funding. And a sub point of that was first batch of founders chosen and they have a good chance of success, good progress, growth and all that stuff. So that's by the end of the year. Uh, yes, I would say on track for these. Um, I think the de facto brand thing comes over time. Maybe it's not a year, but it's kind of a long term goal. The first batch of founders, we are on track. I mean, we're we wanted to have everybody chosen by microconf we didn't get that done but we are most most of the way there to be honest the biggest hang up as per usual is legal rather than any actual conversations or phone calls or any of that it's just getting like everything in bullet points in a legal doc so yeah i'm feeling good about this i mean this is my main thing that i'm working on so i would say on track for that my next one was to lose 15 pounds. Uh, do we do we cue the uh, the audience laughter here now or <laughs> not there? Uh. No, I actually what was I, I think after microconf I'd actually gained eight pounds, but then like the day after or two days after I was back down to my a normal weight or whatever. So I hadn't really lost. I had I think it was just all water weight. So I really haven't lost any measurable amount of weight at this point. So. Got to work on that. I think that'll go back to the uh, the exercise thing. <laughs> My third goal is to not panic when the stock market crashes. Don't really think that's happened. I mean, it's been a little up and down, but there hasn't been a crash. So don't know yet. We'll see. This, this one's a little bit out of my hands, but it's uh, just something nice to be in the back of my mind. Well, you can go out and buy a bottle of whiskey so that when it does crash, then you can drink the whiskey and hopefully, Drown my hopefully forget about the stock market. <laughs> yep, indeed. My next one was to have more regular in-person social contact. And I would say that uh, I'm actually succeeding there. So still meeting up with a bunch of people every once a week. And, you know, obviously, like there was a massive injection of social contact at MicroConf. 
but yeah, I mean, I'm still meeting up with people and th I wouldn't say that this is in-person social contact, but I'm also meeting up with a group of people online, uh, usually on Saturday evenings, but we're going to take a break for a couple of weeks now uh, and then start back up again in May. So should be good. Very nice. My fourth and final goal is to write or rewrite a book. I have not started on this, nor have I thought about it. And it's been because of MicroConf and Tiny Seed all happening here at the first of the year. So, not, I wouldn't say I'm not on track to do this because I haven't started it and it hasn't been on my radar. I want to see once we get the batch chosen and we get things rolling, I want to see how my time works out and if I'm able to to do this, you know, as I said, when we set this, like this for the first time, writing another book aligns with kind of the main thing I'm doing because writing another book about startups didn't align with growing drip. It didn't align with growing hit tail, but it does align with, with tiny seeds. So I have more of a, a reason or an excuse because I really want to do it. Right. So it's more of an excuse to do it. I just got to figure out if I can carve out the time. One thing that will hopefully help with that is, you know, we actually just announced that, uh, uh we hired a program manager with tiny seed. Who's going to help it just help run the accelerator because there's so much work to do, but we hired Tracy Osborne from wedding, formerly of wedding lovely. And she spoke at MicroConf in 2016, did a really good talk there. And so, uh, you know, I've been a longtime fan and we've kept in touch and, and it just worked out really well for her to come join us. And I mean, she's a, she's a developer, a designer. She's written several books on design and I believe some on development as well. She's a public speaker. Like she's got a lot of chops. So stoked to, uh, to be working with her on this and that should help achieve a f hopefully a few of the goals on this list in terms of freeing up time, hopefully for me to, to do something with a book as well as helping us grow tiny seed into that brand I was talking about. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. So it'll be great to have her on. Indeed. And my last one on here was for blue tick and it was to establish traction or move on to something else. And the comments I had on here was that it's fuzzy on exactly what it should mean, whether there should be a revenue target or customer base. And for this, I would say it, it has meandered the past couple of months and it's probably largely for uh, the same reasons that you have not gotten around to writing a book is because of microconf. And it was about a week or two before microconf, I was sitting down and, you know, working on stuff. And I realized that basically the last or the first three months of this year were basically taken up by microconf. Like I did very, very little else. And so it got me to thinking about like, well, how much of my time is actually spent working on blue tick? And my current estimate is between 30 and 40% of my time throughout the course of the year is spent working on blue tick. Whereas I had previously thought that it was closer to 100. And that is totally not the case. I was like, oh, this it kind of changes things in my mind more than anything else, but it's just a, a, a perception or recognition, I'll say, that I'm not really working on it full time. I'm working on it about a third time. I was like, hmm, well, that would probably, probably explain how it meanders a little bit and how I'm not getting as much done on it sometimes as I feel like I should be. Mm -hmm. That makes it tough, man. It's hard to not have that focus, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's almost like you're, you're basically working almost nights and weekends on it. You're kind of like doing, it's a side project, you know? Yeah, that's really what it is, which is kind of explains why, in part explains why like it can kind of meanders along if I'm not paying attention to it and it grows when I am. But if I'm only paying attention to it like that 30% of the time, like it's really not enough to offset churn out of it, to be perfectly honest. So I don't know. I'll have to, I have to give some more thought to that exactly how to address that particular problem, but I'll figure something out. Indeed. Well, there were a couple other things I want to talk about. We do have a couple listener questions, but 
something I thought was was interesting from uh, Patrick Campbell from Profit Well spoke at Microconf a few weeks ago, and a couple of the things, uh, the slides that he put up that were kind of challenging, I think I believe challenged people's thinking were some from some research that they had done because they have a lot of you know recurring revenue SaaS companies using Profit Well and. He posted up two different slides. He posted up several that kind of agreed with our mindset of like, I don't even remember. It was like, this one agrees with your internal monologue, you know, of, of how you believe the world to be. But how about this one? And this is from data, right? This is from 1,800 respondents. And the slide said, remote companies have considerably worse growth and retention than co-located companies. And like the room went silent, you know, and he's like, I know none of us want to hear this because we're building remote companies or we want to build remote companies. But like, how does that make you feel? Do you instantly question the data? You know, whereas he had like, whatever, seven of these different slides that had statements like this. And some were totally in the microconf wheelhouse and totally agreed with bootstrapping and all that stuff. And then others were like this and they challenged our thinking. And, you know, in this one in particular, he had 1800 respondents and the growth was between 21 and 29% slower for remote companies than it was for companies, you know, located in the same location. And so the other one was, you know, companies with founders with a hobby grow slower. This is when the hobby takes 10 hours a week. And the study was done four years in a row. So it was like 2015, 16, eh, it was 14, 15, 16, 17. And each year, I don't know, the growth was 10 or 12% slower for companies with a, you know, with founders with a hobby or whatever. And so it's interesting. I wanted to bat these around really quick, not to, because I don't want to dispute the numbers, right? Because he asked these questions and they're, they're a pretty rigorous company, I believe, in terms of, of data and research. But what do you make of them? Like, what are your thoughts on this? I thought that the, the way he positioned these was to let people think about them and understand their default position on what their beliefs were about the data and whether it conflicted with their worldview. I found that more interesting than the actual data itself because I don't, I don't have access to this data directly, so it's not stuff that I look at or am actively thinking about. But, I mean, the data itself makes sense to me, but like I don't. I don't have anything to dispute it either way. You know, like remote companies have a worse growth and retention or founders with a hobby grow slower. Like that intuitively makes sense. But the, the first one of remote companies having a worse growth rate and worse retention rate, I, I don't know what he meant by co-located. Like, does that mean they have an office or like? No, just local companies that have an office yeah, that, that are not remote. I could see that because I think a lot of people have issues working remotely. Like it's for some people are just not wired that way. Like they can't do it. Yeah, I could see that the retention part of it makes a little bit of sense to me. I mean, when you're working remotely, you don't have as much of a connection to the people. Whereas if you go out to lunch with folks every day, there is more of that, that team or family, depending on how you couch it, there's that feel that, that really is different. So I could see that one being causation because obviously correlation is not causation, right? So that's where I look at the fact that remote companies have considerably worse growth. It doesn't mean that being remote causes worse growth. The thing I was thinking of, and I'm not, you know, again, I'm not trying to challenge his numbers, but I was thinking most venture funded companies, the VCs do not want them to be remote. They frown on remote. So I would hypothesize that most remote companies, the majority, are actually bootstrap companies. Bootstrap, self-funded, whatever, not venture-backed, anything but venture-backed. And as a guess, I would also say that venture-backed companies tend to grow faster overall than bootstrap self-funded companies. One, because that's the mandate 
So, you know, for better or worse, it's growth at all costs a lot of times. So that's their number one KPI is growth, growth, growth. And that's not necessarily with folks in our community. And then number two, venture funded companies tend to have just more money at their disposal. So they can, uh, you know, they can goose the growth almost like, and they can force the growth. So that was something that, that has gone through my head of perhaps it's not, the growth is not caused by the, them being remote, but it's, it's one factor in, you know, in that. It seems to me like you're trying to justify like what those numbers are and kind of fit them into your mental model. And I think that was one of the things that I took away from the talk is if there's data, there's two ways to approach it. One is this is factual and how do I relate to it? Or you're trying to either pick it apart or try to make sure that it doesn't conflict with your worldview. And it's just I I can kind of see both ways on, on both of them. I think you can as well, but like you're trying to ma map these things to your mental model of why these things could be true, even though you don't necessarily want to like go out and get funding, for example. Totally. And that's the thing, like, so companies with founders or the hobby grow slower, remote companies, grow, you know, grow slower. I, it's like, so what? So what, you know, when I come back to my values of freedom, purpose, and relationships, growth is not one of those three core values. I did like having companies that grew in revenue because it led to a certain amount of success, it, it, it lends a bunch of things. I can impact more people. I can make more money. I can, you know, have, it, it led to more purpose and I could have more impact. And I could also, there, there was just a bunch of stuff with it. But frankly, if I'm going to have a hobby and I'm going to play my guitar or I'm going to play tabletop games or I'm, my hobby is hanging out with my kids, but I grow slower by 10, 12, 15% a year, I'm actually okay with that. That's a personal thing of mine. So I, the, while these things might say, oh my gosh, you know, it might, it might make you rethink everything. It's like, we're not in the venture funded space. So can we just have profitable businesses? I mean, isn't that what startups for the rest of us and microconf and kind of our, you know, our movement or community or whatever you want to call it is kind of about is that growth at all costs is nothing we've ever, you know, espoused. And frankly, just growth in general. Yeah, it's good. It feels, you know, it feels good. And it's, it's a goal. I mean, it should be a, a goal somewhere on your radar, but it's not, the number one and it'll be all for me or for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. I mean, just growing headcount is not the major goal for most people that I know. Whereas you said, like if for a, a VC or funded company, it kind of is to be honest. So, you know, it would make sense that those types of companies would do that. But again, like, I think that even in just saying that or going, kind of going down that part of the conversation, we're really drawing attention to the fact that like now we're starting to pick apart the data and, and question, is this data accurate or how good is the data? And that's that's exactly what I took away from Patrick's talk, which was, you know, when you see data that conflicts with what you think, consider why that is. Yeah. And but I don't think that's what we're doing here, right? We're not I wasn't saying the data is not correct. I was saying, let's say this is correct. Am I okay with that? You know, am I okay with growing a business that am I okay having a hobby? And it's like, yeah, that's the beauty of, of being in control of my business is that I can make these decisions. Yep, totally. Cool. Listener question. Let's dive in. We have a voicemail from Josh Duty. It's about uh, metrics, rules of thumbs for B2C products. Hey, Robin, Mike. It's Josh Duty here, microcomp attendee frequently. And also, uh, I run my business at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. I have a question that might be a little bit outside your wheelhouse, but I'd really love to get your perspective on some metrics and things for my business as people who think about SaaS a lot. So I run um, a B2C business that has two sides. Uh, one side is coaching. That side's great. Inbound marketing it works really well. It's where I make most of my living. But then I have a, a product side of my business that, again, is B2C. 
mostly driven by organic search traffic on Google. And really what I'm struggling with is trying to figure out what are good metrics for my business. So how do I know, you know, I'm kind of doing well in terms of converting email subscribers to customers primarily, but even, you know, top of funnel, converting um, visitors to email subscribers. And I use a sort of typical, you know, nurture campaign, sales sequence type funnel in my business. So I was just curious if you could point me to some resources or other examples of folks who do B2C organic search driven businesses online. Uh, I'm in the career space, salary negotiation, getting raises and that sort of thing. And we're just really curious if you had any ideas from a SaaS perspective of what, what a good sort of funnel from search visitor to converted customer at an info product would be And my products range from about $47 for some email templates on up to uh, about $240 for like a, you know, the, the complete bundle is what I call it. So thanks so much for all you do at Starbucks for the rest of us. Love the podcast, been listening since the beginning and looking forward uh, to what you guys think. Thanks for your time. Bye. And Mike, for a question like this, I'd like to take us out to our remote correspondent. He's a growth expert. He uh, does some B2B, but he does even more B2C. Microconf speaker, Tiny Seed mentor, Taylor Hendrickson. Taylor, what are your thoughts for Josh? Hey, Rob and Mike. Thanks for having me on. And Josh, thanks for submitting your question. Before we jump into the rule of thumb metrics on B2C products, I'd like to note that it really does differ greatly from business to business and product to product, depending on a few things. The two of the biggest ones being the purchase price that you're obviously selling the products for and what kind of hunger towards the offer there is. Like some things that are solve hair on fire problems will generate much better kind of returns in these metrics than other ones that really don't have that. So jumping in, there's three of the rule of thumbs I like to go for in general B2C offers. For on-site opt-in rate, for a website visitor, usually coming for organic, to an email opt-in, we like to see a conversion rate of about 2 to 3%. We've seen as low as, you know, you can have nothing, uh, or as high as anywhere from 6 to 7% if you have a really great offer dialed into that content. After they're on your email list, a list-to-sale rate, so we'll purchase any of your products, and let's assume you have a 60 to 90-day sales cycle that you can go to. Uh, but a list-to-sale rate, we generally see about a 1 to 2% rate in there. And lastly, the value per email subscriber. So how much each email subscriber is worth is around 3 to $5 in the first 60 to 90 day period. That, that's the one that differs the most. Depending on this, obviously the financial niches can go up even higher and some of the more hobby niches can go lower. But ways to improve some of those metrics for your current setup, first off for the opt-in rate, you know, looking through some of your content, some of the content upgrades could definitely be improved, brought to attention more, maybe some more standout design around it. Specific on something like the salary negotiation guide. I saw it was one of the best pages you rank for. It could be a tremendous opportunity to send people into that opt-in funnel, but the current opt-ins you have were kind of just gray and not really that eye-catching. How to improve the list of sale. This is something where it sounds like you've already got a lot of the core pieces in place with the nurture sequence, the sales sequence, stuff like that. I haven't gone through your funnel yet, but I'm sure those are pretty good. A way to boost that is through flash sales is something I like to do. And hopefully you can generate custom coupons with your setup. I'm not sure SendOwl can, which is the platform you're using, but other platforms like um, Entreport, ActiveCampaign, WooCommerce can do hacks to basically allow you to generate custom coupons for that user that expire in, let's say, 24 hours. 
we like to push those. If we've seen people have engaged, maybe they visit the sales page, but they haven't purchased yet. That's one way to cheaply get them over the hump to make a purchase. And the last way to improve your value per email subscriber is after you've gone through your main sales sequences, really lengthen out as long as you can a good long-term content and affiliate marketing sequence. So after you pitch your products, go through all the good relevant ones that you'd actually recommend to your audience just to increase that visitor value over time. Another easy thing to add on that I didn't see you have is a push notification list. That's a really easy thing to plug in. And we're seeing great opt-in rates that are really low friction ways to get that audience out. And then you can actually set, set those automated campaigns to go out over time to drip out the same content you normally would mixed in with sales stuff. In terms of resources to look for at these metrics, as well as kind of learning more how to improve those, the biggest one that comes to mind is just Digital Marketer. Um, their customer value ascension journey um, is a good way to map that. And some of their... Tactics are a little bit more aggressive in terms of the rule of thumbs. So they say $1 per email subscriber per month, and especially they play in the financial world, so they can definitely achieve this. But they're mailing pretty often and have very aggressive sales tactics within those emails. So I hope this was helpful. And back to you, Robin Mike. Thanks, Taylor, for your on-site commentary. Mike, anything to add? Uh, no, that was fantastic. That was a great, great addition. <laughs> I know this, is, this comes back to the the whole thing of like you and I have a you know certain wheelhouses and experiences, but it's so cool when we can, we're able to call on other people in the community because this isn't one of them. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I I would have had to go and and research this. I had some B two C stuff way back in the day, but it was over a decade ago, and you know it's just not not something that we would have. So that was awesome for someone who, you know, day to day is doing a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, B2C stuff. As I said, he also does some B2B, but he's one of the folks I know who's really, really knee deep in this stuff. So thanks for the question, Josh. I hope that was helpful. And thanks Taylor for chiming in on that. And our other question for the day comes to us from Justin Wolf from positionhealth.co. He says, hey guys, first off, thanks for the show. Very informative. I have a question about some case studies that we've produced for my company, Position Health, which provides real-time notifications whenever people enter or exit medical facilities. Right now, I've got a webpage where interested people can fill out a form to request a download of the case study by entering their contact info. When people make this request, we send it to them and add that person as a sales prospect. My question is around indexing for the content in the case study. Right now, the case study isn't published on our website but it has lots of good content and would probably help with making our website more findable in search engines. How would we go about making the case studies content count towards our website in the SEO sense while still making it available by request only via our email opt-in? Thanks and keep up the good work. What do you think, Mike? There's two things I can think of off the top of my head. The first one would be more related to SEO. So I'll say the second one first, which is you could do paid ads for the content, and that way you're essentially driving people to a landing page and you're getting their email address. But that's not quite what you're looking for. I think what you're looking for is something along the lines of publishing some of the content or like a partial excerpt of it and then providing it as a download if you enter in your email address. So maybe give the the title, maybe a brief synopsis of it, and then first couple of paragraphs of it or something like that, or maybe some images from it that are a little bit blurred out, so to speak. And you can, I'll say, entice people using something like that. But really just like you can use excerpts from that content or from that case study around on your website in various places, even in other content, and use it as a essentially a content upgrade and help capture email 
addresses using that. Other, otherwise, like if you are looking to expand the amount of information that's on your website, you could post it there as well. I get what you're trying to do in terms of forcing people to download it. And I didn't, I didn't mention it on our last podcast episode where we talk specifically about case studies, but it's possible you could get away with posting it like for free and publicly to your website and then also make it available in different places as, you know, something that people can just download. So you put the content on the site and then if you want the downloadable version of it, you could say, okay, enter in your email address over here. But I don't know. I have, I have mixed feelings on how well that would actually even work. Yeah, I was the the last one that you said was the one I was thinking about was basically if you have a blog or an article section or an essay section, then you you put this in there as a text case study. And when people land on that, then you say, hey, opt in and get this epically formatted, you know, amazing downloadable PDF thing of this, plus an audio version, frankly, if you because that's that's the thing recording an audio version of something like that is is super fast and, and easy to do. But then you could also, if you have just a landing page, whether it's your homepage or it's a squeeze page or it's something you're sending ads to, you know, and and you're saying, hey, I have this great case study and it has this great content and your email to download it here. The odds of someone kind of wandering over and digging through archives of your essays to find this one post that is the same content, it's just, it's not that likely. So that's what, that's what I was, and that was my initial thought about it was, just offer it in two places as long as it's not, I don't know, like linked to from your header by the same name or linked to in your footer by the same name. You know, that's more of a section to someone to have to go to, to and search from. That's what Google's going to want to crawl, right? Is if you have this collection of things and you have this group of content. If, if your website is literally a homepage with an opt-in uh, to get the case study and you know, and then just this one article off of it, well, that's a little weird then. And, and I don't, I don't really know an easy way around that. And frankly, with two pages, it's a thin site anyways, and Google you know, is probably not going to rank you for anything. So you, you have to have more built out than that. And once you get more built out, when you're at 20, 30, 40 different pages on the site, um, that's when it becomes easier to put, put it in a section and then Google will index it, assuming you know, they, they, they're indexing your site, and then you'll rank accordingly. So I wouldn't be too hung up on, since it's, it's behind an email gate you know, through this route, that I can never publish it on my site through this other route because people will find it and then, you know, and then they won't opt into the email. It's just, it's such a, a 5% use case that it wouldn't be something I'd be particularly concerned about. Well, Rob, I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupstherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt for Wild Out Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestofus.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. So, Rob, I read an article yesterday. There was uh, a woman at MIT who was – she's like a, an undergrad – or she's a graduate student, and part of her thesis is capturing the photos of the black hole. Have you seen those pictures? Yeah. They're epic. I was showing them to my kids. Yeah. So the, the photos are amazing. It's fantastic that she's gone and done this. But what 
boggled my mind was that I was reading this article and in it, it said that they was talking about the telescope array. And this was not like a, it's like CNN.com. So they're, you know, obviously like trying to acquire a certain type of user. And I was reading it and I got to a point where it said the telescope array collected 5,000 trillion bytes of data over two weeks, which was processed through supercomputers, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked at it and I said, wait, isn't that just like five terabytes of data? And, and it is. And it's just, it just struck me as odd that they're trying to make it sound like so incredibly impressive by saying it's 5,000 trillion bytes of data. Yeah. Because it's, it's. Right. <laughs> Five terabytes. Right. It's such a, that's such the pop, uh, pop magazine or, or whatever pop culture way of like framing things where when you're in it, at, you're just like, no, this is not a big deal at all. Right. And then I saw pictures of the student and she's like in front of these, like all these different hard drives and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that could all fit on one hard drive. I don't yeah, understand. One hard drive, like the size of my thumb, you know? <laughs> no, it's funny, dude. It's, you know, anytime I see a story about startups or entrepreneurship that's written by mainstream media, it's like such an eye roll of like, oh, you're sensationalizing this. Sherry does the same thing with psychology where these studies come out and people quote like, did you know that stress will kill you. And it's like, yeah, no, it will. We've known that for a long time. And here's, here's all the research, you know, or they'll come up with a new study. Like researchers have found that people with brown eyes live 10 minutes, you know, 10, 10 years shorter. And she's like, well, that's not technically what the research says. They're like totally reading into this and making things up. And that's what this feels like where it's like, oh, five trillion bytes, huh? Really? Yep. No, 5,000 trillion 5, bytes. 5,000 trillion. <laughs> Sounds like a lot to me, Mike. I, I know it does. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty um, sensationalizing, as you, as you said. That's funny. On my on my Amazon Echo, I saw that story and I watched it. And then it flipped through and there was a kid that locked his parents' iPad for 48 years. Because, <laughs> you know, you can enter the wrong code and it'll lock for five minutes. And if you sit there and wait... You can then lock it for an hour, then you lock it for 24 hours and all that stuff. Well, this three-year-old locked it for 40 years. I don't know how long, how long he was entering the wrong code, but that's funny. Yeah, I, I saw that article too, and I was like, doesn't it just double the amount of time each time? It must not. It must do something else because otherwise it would get to 24 years and then go to 48. But it just seemed odd that – Yeah. I don't know. It seems like there would be something other than like wait you know, three days and now wait 48 years. You know, It's just – there seems like there should be another step in there and this three-year-old would have gotten there by now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. That's uh, something in there doesn't just doesn't add up. I don't know what it is. Other thing for you, I, I actually had a question for you. So we did not talk about this on the last episode at all, but we before MicroConf, we had alluded to it where I was going to be running that D&D campaign at MicroConf. Did you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, for sure. What, what were your thoughts and impressions there? Oh, I mean, that was it was super cool. So we we got together in Josh Kaufman's hotel room with some other D and Ders. I'm sure they wouldn't mind being mentioned, right? We didn't get their permission, but do you think they're like closet D and Ders? I, I don't think so. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Patrick McKenzie and Joel Hooks and Dave Rodenbaugh. It was super fun, man. And yeah, my impressions were. I don't remember the last. I can't remember the last time I played a game where I only played one character. Like that's how sad my like my gaming life is. Is that I tend to, like, my son will DM for me or we'll have one other friend over. And so we all wind up playing multiple characters all the time. It was super cool to just have one character to focus on. The adventure was cool because you had super tight time frame, right? The world was ending in 20 rounds of combat. And so we had to, 25 or whatever. I came in late and 
I, I thought you did a great job. I really enjoyed your your DM style. Cool. Yeah, I was a, it was a little bit of time consuming to um, print out everything and make sure everything was all set because I converted it over from a, it was a fourth edition adventure module and I converted it over to fifth edition based on you know another place that I got it from and uh, some of the, there were like errors and bugs in it and so I had to fix those and try and figure stuff out and uh, I was thinking back on it afterwards and there were probably two or three different places where like everybody could have died and they didn't because things happen in a very certain way. So it's like everything was, was like right on a razor's edge. And that was actually the way I had intended for it to be. It's like, it could have gone either way and chances are good that you probably aren't going to make it, but it was, it was nice. It was great that you guys, you know, everything worked out in your favor at the end, but I would not have placed money on that for sure. <laughs> no, that's a thing. One or two really one bad die roll in a number of times and we would, the world would have ended. We'd all have been dead. And that's what was fun about it is the stakes were high. It was also fun. It was just, it was brand new char- one shot characters, you know, that we could just roll through it and getting the fact that we were rolling pretty well helped. Except when Patrick called for the luck of Timor and rolled a one. <laughs> world of one. Yeah. That didn't go well. So yeah, no, overall it was, it was, I just, I enjoyed hanging out and Hanging out and doing it. It was it was funny that more than one person referred to it as the first annual MicroConf D and D game. I know. Before we <laughs> even played, what have we gotten ourselves into? <laughs> what did I start here? <laughs> exactly. Um, but I am shocked that it took eighteen MicroConfs before we got a uh, a pre conference D and D game going. So. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, given how many how many of us do play games of one form or another, you'd think we would have had tabletop games or something. And I mean, for folks who, who've never played Dungeons and Dragons, like it's it's just shared storytelling, you know, with a with a referee. In essence, you you were there to kind of manage everything and help the story. But we're all making decisions together and doing things. And it's it exercises the creative mind. It exercises probability because you're rolling dice and the challenge. I mean, it reminds me of starting companies, right? There's a bunch of stuff that that overlaps with it where you're just trying to make Make things up as you go along, which is quite literally what starting a company is and playing, you know, this game because it is so open-ended. But it was cool. I, you know, I enjoyed, I liked that we played with miniatures. That's, I used to do Mind's Eye and where you just describe it and that's fine. But like now that I play with minis, I really don't want to go back to the other way. And it's so fun having maps and being able to go through it. And you had printouts that made the map change when the floor dropped out and there was lava or whatever, and you, you put that on there like that, that's cool. And I'm, I'm enjoying the more I get into it, I'm enjoying the kind of more advanced way of doing it. I have friends who use a, you know, a 30 inch monitor that they put down and that's the play surface, right? It's like using the, what is it? Roll 20 or there's some other systems that allow you to do that and do fog of war and everything. But you you did it quite simply. I do it with a a wet erase board and I kind of draw stuff and then I'll throw some terrain down as well. But to be able to do it with printouts, I thought was a pretty elegant solution. Yeah, and it just it kind of worked out that way with the printouts, just because the like I could put the tokens that people were playing with directly on the paper because I I printed it out in such a way that the it was like one inch squares and when they were printed it actually like the tokens fit on them and I bought some you know like blank tokens and then it had stuff I printed out and cut it out cut out and then pasted on top of the tokens so like we actually had things that you could move around on the board as opposed to just like describing it or talking about it because like in this particular one like your location mattered quite a bit in terms of what you were able to do and moving around and hitting traps and things like that so but i i definitely did not want to bring like full-blown miniature figures 
So yeah, I, I guess that's right. You had tokens and I'm, I brought, I was the only one that brought a mini <laughs> nerd alert, but I mean, it's a trip dude. Cause we were playing fifth edition and like three, four weeks ago, I played a first edition AD and D game where Ernie Gygax was the DM. I did that at Gary Con. And so it was, you know, it was cool to see how different that was. He did mind's eye stuff. We did have minis, but it was only for marching order. And the rules, obviously, you know, it's descending armor class versus ascending. I mean, there's all the first edition to fifth edition changes. And yet they were both super fun. You know, it it, it just doesn't it doesn't impact it that much as long as you go with it. And the role playing was still the same. And the combat is, you know, I guess the mechanics are different, but it's still it's still such a fun time to collaborate with other people and try to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was cool. Uh, you know, it was unfortunate that Patrick McKenzie's character died so early on, but he did get to voice the, uh, the bad guy at the end. So that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. He's super funny. Yeah. It, it, I think if he, if I'd had a bit more time to prepare or if he were probably more familiar with kind of what the evil character was, then I would have just handed it over to him and said, here, you run this character. And then, you know, that would have been how the rest of it would have played out. But I just, I just don't think it would have worked because there were certain things that you know the bad guy could do that were probably non-obvious. But yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a good time. Looking forward to uh, figuring out what we'll do next time around. <laughs> Indeed.